I would like to acknowledge Bob Simpson, who was a, a co-author on this paper when we wrote this paper together when I was in, <coughs> in Durham and uh, in the anthropology department before I came to Oxford in, uh, in October. The one I'm going to talk to you about today <coughs> is roughly structured as follows. I'll talk to you about the scene that, we're, we're, uh, that I'm talking about at the moment. I'll then talk you through um, suicide in Sri Lanka and what does this mean uh, <coughs> in statistics. Now, as I'm interested in clinical research on these suicide patients or poisoning patients, um, I'll then describe what the hospital experience is like. Um, the question, where is the evidence, comes from a paper in toxicology, a medical journal, whereby uh, toxicology researchers call for further uh, knowledge and research and evidence into how these poisoning patients are, are being treated in the hospitals at the moment. And I'll do some uh, conceptual somersaults talking about abjects, objects and subjects and what that means will become more apparent later on in the talk. And although it might feel like it takes us a while to get to those three concepts, all of these different themes that go on prior to them are required for you to understand what these three conceptualizations mean in clinical research in those contexts. And I'll then conclude with some, uh, with some thoughts uh, on precarious ethics or uh, bioethics more precisely. So in Sri Lanka, uh, suicide has been a major issue for the past uh, 50 years. Sri Lanka has had the highest incidence of, um, of suicide um, and it's a significant public health concern in the, in the region. Um, <coughs> there's international collaborative research to understand with why this is the case, but that has been wanting and a lot long coming, so um, the paper is really about the trials in Sri Lanka, but also um, a story about trials in developing country context when clinical trials have been travelling to contexts where they haven't been uh, really done in using the RCT methodology um, before. In doing clinical trials in these circumstances, ethics is, is on the edge. People are working in circumstances where healthcare access is limited and uh, the capacity to do trials is, is novel. So this paper is not exactly it's not an evaluation of the ethical capacity of the researchers that I studied but more a description of how they managed those those challenges um, there's not an evaluation as I said but rather more uh, and not a normative study so we can I'm sure that you'll have a lot of normative questions at the end of my talk and I'm, I'm happy to to talk to you more about the normative implications of what I have done but really this is an ethnographic inquiry an anthropological study um, to the trials and to clinical research um, and I spent several months in fact over a year and a half in Sri Lanka in 2009 uh, and 2008 studying these trials I spent most of my time in rural hospitals following how the trials are conducted and um, how the issue of poisoning manifested itself in the, in the wards. <coughs> so when those trials are conducted, uh, from a sociological, anthropological analysis, what's interesting not so much is whether the trials are run appropriately, how ethics is performed, but what is interesting is, is how this knowledge is produced and how the ethical issues map into those. And that is what I'll be talking about when I talk about the abject, object and the subject. Um, this paper is written in such a way that there are two different narratives going on in it. 
I will start each of those sections um, that I describe in the earlier slide with an introduction from my field notes that talk about uh, the death of a man who was part of a trial. And I'll talk you through that. Uh, I'll read out, sorry, to, it, to mark the distinction between the field notes and the analyses, what I will do is I'll read out my field notes, which read slightly differently than the than analyses that I will be talking freely and uh, excuse the conceptual confusions. Do ask any clarifications if there are such. But um, to start with, I will read out the excerpt and an introduction that will really give you a feel of what it was like when, uh, what it is like for the, the poisoning patients and uh, for the ethnographer who is studying the research on suicide patients. You might be wondering why recruit, why study people who have tried to commit suicide and that will be answered in, in the process of the, the paper. <coughs> so now I'm in a, in the in a hospital in a rural hospital in the northeast of um, of Sri Lanka in the north central province and uh, I had gone there to visit uh, the collaboration that does a study with one of the the senior investigators who were part of the trial we came to the hospital early in the morning and as we arrived this is what happened I was visiting an, uh, a hospital in North Central Province with Dogath, a senior toxicologist and a researcher at an international research centre based in Sri Lanka to observe the conduct of trials. We got to the hospital at 9am in the morning. The trial was managed within a general ward by junior researchers come doctors who worked for the same collaboration as Dogath, who ran the trial that I was interested in. At the hospital, the first thing uh, we were told by these junior researchers that there was a paraquat, a weedicide poisoning case. We rushed to the ward, and you'll understand what all that means in, in a minute. Uh, the ward was very crowded. The space between the beds was less than half a metre. There must have been about 40 patients in this ward in total. Some shared beds, some people slept on the floor. The ward was open on the sides, but, but roofed. There were a lot of flies everywhere, and the sun was already soaring, though it was early. Patients were shouting, moaning, some were lying quietly. We found the paracot patient curled up on an iron bed on a plastic sheet, shivering. The patient was a 29-year-old man brought to the hospital without relatives. He had a long hair, beads around his neck, and he wore a blue sarong, or, or on his uh, lower body. At this point, the patient was still able to talk and sat up at times, looking around. While he looked around, his eyes were wandering, bloodshot and wild. The paracot patient had been admitted at 2.30 at the night before. He had taken about taken amount, the amount of paracot, which was 100 millilitres, that is a lethal dose. So this man now at the hospital um, had taken a large amount of uh, um, we decide that was enough to, to kill him. Um, he had done so with the intention of, of suicide or self-harm. And the background to that is that uh, Sri Lanka has had the highest incidence of uh, suicide in the world, which has since the 90s halved, but is still significantly high and very uh, much prevalent, remains a prevalent public health concern. The commonest methods of self-harm are you taking poison by far, by far before jumping the train or trying to hang oneself. And uh, usually the toxins that people use are uh, pesticides related to farming and uh, some poisoning, poisonous plants. Of some of these um, pesticides, 
like the paraquat that the man had taken that I just told you about, um, the mortality rate is up to 50%, of course, depending on the amount that has been ingested. And this is not just a problem relevant to Sri Lanka, but uh, it's largely a public health problem uh, particular to, to um, Asia and Africa and developing world, leading it to about 235,000 deaths in the world annually. So why such a high incidence? What is it about Sri Lanka that um, has caused this situation of the two occur? Uh, one of the rela- reasons that have been uh, given in the literature has to do with green revolution. So during the 70s and 80s, uh, cheap fertilizers, pesticides and herbicides became available to farmers with subsidized raised rates in order to increase productivity and, um, and to be able to feed the populations in those nations, um, in the developing world by and large. Um, in India, this has led to uh, a, defini- a, co- a term coined as uh, the farmer suicides because of arguments such as the, the use of pesticides in the Green Revolution led to further insecurities and uncertainties uh, with these farmers and they were bonded into to relationships with the sellers that led to a lot of debt in case if the, the crops failed that um, then led to increased suicides and uh, therefore, you know, debt and suicides. In Sri Lanka, the market economy changed to uh, a capitalist economy in 1977, and equally there have been arguments that there has been a peak in the suicide following the Green Revolution and the economic opening. Um, But I'll I'll tell you more a bit about the alternative to to the debt theory at the same time, the, the pesticides also became a lot more potent, and I'll tell you, let me go, come back to that in a minute. Rather than going to these uh, statistical explanations, uh, there has been also not so much economic and agricultural theories about why suicide it has, its incidence has been so high in Sri Lanka, uh, come from like political uh, scientists and uh, social scientists and psychologists who argue that um, there's something about the Sri Lankan culture that has led to, to this. So psychologists like uh, Jean Marajek has done really interesting work on the relational aspects of, <coughs> of suicide, saying that there is a, there is a dynamic about between people that has led, that <coughs> not necessarily led in a causal way, but why, the reasons why people uh, commit suicide or self-harm has to do with that they want to uh, get the attention of other people. They do it because they have been, not because they're depressed in the same way that suicide would be done, committed in the West, but actually because people want to express their anger or frustration towards other people. So there is a kind of a cyclical, so what some people have called a karmic trap, that people might want to punish the, the other person who has caused them harm. But nonetheless, um, the suicide has become normalised in society, and uh, people talk, everybody has some, knows somebody who's com- tried to commit suicide and harm themselves, and these are stories that circulate widely in the po- uh, popular discourse. Others have argued that political conflict has something to do with it. Sri Lanka has had civil wars and uh, political uprisings in the same period of time, suggesting that violence has also become normalised and self-harm and violence towards others and the self using this way has become a high strategy, um, high-risk high strategy to, to express um, distress and uh, anger and frustration. 
but really the the novel attention about the reasons why people do it going beyond the statistics has shown that um, it has shifted the attention from individual individuals to populations. There's been a, an approach that goes beyond the individuals to the point of looking at well, uh, looking at the epidemiology and the public health problems that underlie the suicide. So not so much as an economic issue, but uh, turning from the sociological issues to also the epidemiological facts, and then perhaps questioning some the the idea that there's something about the Sri Lankan culture that embeds them to or sensitizes them to commit suicide, but actually there is something about um, the need to look at the circumstances in which people harm themselves. And then this has led to the ability to think of maybe perhaps there isn't a suicidal attempt here, but is it's we should be more appropriately talking about self-harm that then unfortunately leads to death. And the al- argument here is that the availability of the pesticides is so easily accessible because they are sold in the farms. Most of the self-harmers are, are farmers. They have pesticides in their houses. And the ones that are available are so lethal that um, they, they unfortunately, as a result, die. So this approach has then led to the ideas of, well, how if this is not a cultural fact, if you will, then uh, could we prevent these deaths by changing policy selling more uh, diluted versions, banning most lethal suicide uh, uh, poisons, and, and so on. Nonetheless, um, despite the, the policy attempts, um, if one takes pesticides and then is brought from the rural regions, uh, regions to the hospitals, this is often done in a way that your family members or friends ship you to uh, to the hospital in a three wheeler or in a lorry in various states of of distraught and uh, and pain, and then in the hospitals where they um, end up in, um, they are stigmatized in in ways that I will describe in a minute. So, the what they have committed is an act against norms in all the religions and the general society at large of not harming, not killing, and not harming with oneself or others, very prominent in Buddhist ideology of don't harm, don't kill. And so this, these attitudes prevail very strongly and then become activated powerfully in the lives of these people when they are brought to the hospitals. Now, I will move to reading from my field notes. This uh, section is called At the Hospital. And we're now back in the rural hospital. A test was done to confirm that the poison that the male patient had taken was indeed paraquat, one of the most lethal ones, and it came out positive. Since the patient had been admitted that night, he had not received any care from the nurses and the doctors in the ward. Upon arrival, he had been under the influence of alcohol and drunk. Jagath, the senior researcher, said that he should have been put on a drip straight away to give him body fluids, to give him fluids. Next to the paracot man was another man who had swallowed poison, an old, skeletal, toothless man who wore a purple sarong. <coughs> his legs were tied together to the end of the bed, and his right arm was tied to the side of the bed. He had a drip of atropine, which is an antidote for many pesticides, going into his other arm, which was tied to the other side of the bed. He was delirious, talking to himself, repeating mindless words, shouting Singhalese to invisible companions that only he could see. 
Jagath explained to me that delirium was a side effect of atropine overdose. The patient had wetted himself. A pool of urine was on the floor underneath him. A green blanket was in a bundle, partly in the pool of urine. Patients on the other beds and their relatives were looking at us to see what was going on because the paracot patient was by now very ill. Nurses in skillfully folded bonnets were going around the ward attending other patients and there were doctors on the, the other side of the ward. Now, these desperately ill patients, like in this quote, are submitted to, admitted to hospitals which uh, generally are ill-equipped and poorly stacked with antidotes. During my research, more often than they're not, the, kinds, the amount of antidotes in the, um, in to, to the amount of antidotes were not available in the measurements that usually would be required, re recommended in international guidelines to, to prevent then uh, whatever side effects that the, the toxins or the effects that the toxins have that they, that might have hit, saved the patient. Um, they were dated care practices that I will elaborate a little bit more and. Uh, Though there were staff, it, it always seemed like there wasn't quite enough of them. They arrived, they arrived to the hospital at all times of the day, and they were transferred more often than not from other hospitals from more rural regions to large, slightly larger um, um, hospital units, depending on how sick where they, are, they were. Well, when, they, when the patients were admitted to the ward, the admission was generally a chaos and not always a well-organized chaos. Um, the patient's information was taken from either from the patient, from medical records, or from their relatives. They were checked for their symptoms, what was going on. Um, they were checked for the kinds of toxins that they had taken, which was generally quite difficult because the patient might not be saying anything, they might have been very ill, or gener generally <coughs> that, that what they said they had taken reflected by well, took some liquid I'm not entirely sure so unless there was a receptacle or some kind of bag or description what they had taken it was hard to figure it out so quite, this inquiry went on did you take what kind of what did it look like what color was it was it a pill was it a tablet was it liquid did you buy it from the shop did you have it in your home was it a bulk strength was it diluted and how much did you take Sometimes the patients wouldn't want to disclose any of this information, and sometimes the information was taken from the, the previous records. Um, after the patients were clocked, depending on ad admitted to the hospital, depending on how serious they were, they were either put um, somewhere in the ward or in the balcony outside or on the floor, depending on how much of it space there was available. And if they had taken more serious poisons, they were then... Uh, put on a, on a bed and they got more attention. F following the, the admission they were um, they, they had a decontamination routine done onto them so even though some of the gu international guidelines don't necessarily recommend it <coughs> it was difficult to, to not to argue the nurses not to, to do it which was a task of the nurses because often the nurses felt like they don't do co decontamination routine it, it feels like they're not doing anything or it might so happen that the relatives or the friends of the patient would plead the doctors and the nurses to do something, whilst it actually it, this toxicology would suggest that sometimes it's best not to do anything. But so 
<coughs> the decontamination is important is because that the, guide, the, the way this was practiced was, uh, was interesting and also relevant to the, the toxicology of it, uh, in the sense that what was often recorded as decontamination routine in practice might have meant anything from giving the patient activated charcoal, great, um, making them swal uh, swallow water with bicarbonate soda, sodium bicarbonate, which is, was the most common case scenario that I saw, or um, sort of forced emesis using a, like a, a flushing of, of the stomach. All of this was recorded under the same name, but it had implication to the further care because depending on what was done, it might have had, in fact, harmful effects on the patient's, patient's um, outcomes. So, for example, using sodium bicarbonate would inevitably come up with such a force the patient would vomit um, indiscriminately all over from a plastic bucket to, like, all over the floor. And, in fact, it would tear the insides more and thereby... Um, facilitate the, the toxins to take a more, do more damage inside. Um, and yet, if that was only recorded as, without somebody being there to, to see what happens, uh, it might just look like a systematic practice was done. Anyway, that's an interesting, um, it's in, interesting observation um, that has implication to the med medical side of things. Uh, the other outdated practice I would notice is, is obviously tying patients down that, that nobody would support, but sometimes because of lack of staff and how um, poorly they were, this often happened because of our, the reason why it was said that they, that was done was that they would fidget and hurt themselves. But, um, but all the international guidelines, also with the conversation that I had with the researchers, they, they said <coughs> that this would better not be done. Uh, let me yeah, read you a quote uh, regarding the stigma. So ideally, this, I, interview, I interviewed all the doctors in the wards and regarding the care of the poisoning patients. And, and they said, ideally as doctors, there shouldn't be any difference between how we treat poisoning patients and other patients. But here in Sri Lanka, poisoning is a very widespread problem. The medical staff is also a part of the community. They represent the whole community. They tend to consider the poisoning patients with a little bit less care. I don't mean that, I mean we all do, but it's hard to explain. This means that for every patient, we need to treat them as humans. We should respect them, but regarding the poisoning, this respect is a little bit lost. And then I ask him, well, why is that? And they try to explain, saying that in the whole community, there are some opinions that, that look at poisoning patients as less valuable. They think, I think here we don't internationally do it, intentionally do it, but I think, as according to our observation, for some part, it happens here, it's still here. It's a roundabout saying that this person has seen it happening and, and expresses some um, embarrassment and hesitation, but still implies that it, it, it is done. Clearly, this person knows what is expected and reflects warm themes like value, respect and care, and so at the same time reflects on these deeply structural and institutional problems um, that research... Um, that about the care of the poisoning patients that the researchers um, then wanted to address. So who were these researchers? This next section is called Research into Poisoning, Where is the Evidence? Dilojan, who was one of the junior research doctors and a research assistant on the trial, took the Paracup patient's 
pulse and blood pressure. Upon their conversation, it became apparent that the patient didn't know exactly where he was. He didn't remember being brought over from a primary hospital, primary healthcare centre to the tertiary hospital, but he understood that he was in a hospital. Dillon had approached him with the idea of being part of a research study once the man had sober up, sobered up at about 7 o'clock in the morning. Dillon had told the patient about his condition and the experimental research that might or might not help him. The patient had given his consent. Dillon checked with, from Jagath that it was okay to keep the man enrolled in the trial even though he didn't know anymore exactly where he was. Jagath said that it was, and he was recruited in the trial. The patient's condition had deteriorated in the meantime, and by this point it started to be clear that he was going to die. He was no longer talking, and he was gasping for air. He had convulsions, he shook out of control and had diarrhoea. Shanta, another research assistant, took the patient's blood sugar and he was given glucose. I asked Jagath what the point was of starting the trial when it was obvious that the patient was going to die. He said that things had to be done according to the protocol. The now trial participant was put on a drip and the trial coordinator who was in charge of randomization and blinding brought along the compound that was being experimented. In this quote, the research written by this research community that, that I'd studied, raised the question, where is the evidence? And really the, the question was a prod to the medical community to say that, why hasn't this issue that is such a pressing issue been a research priority? Speculations why it has not been a priority uh, come from other writers from regarding general um, lack of interest in research, lack of funding in research at large, and the stigma on this particular condi condition. The researchers' article subheading was Is Toxicology Fiddling While the Developing World Burns? Using uh, the rhetoric of the 9 to 10 gap, which is a, a, a statistic from Bicored from 1995, yet still quite a potent one, suggesting that 90% of the world's, 93% of the world's healthcare funding goes to the benefit of 10% of people in the world, a statistic that I'm sh sure all of you are aware of. And they were calling that this neglected condition within the neglected diseases or tropical diseases would require more research attention despite um, the challenging setup where they were going to do the study. An international collaboration was set up in 2005 and just to be explicit about it, this is not just international people coming to Sri Lanka, but this is a collaboration which has a large proportion of Sri Lankan researchers and ownership on site, <coughs> planning the trials and the programs um, that are being conducted, together with um, local hospitals, local doctors and policymakers. And so one of the important spurs in, into doing this research was the fact that patients w needed attention. Um, it was almost like an ethical mandate for researchers to do the research because not doing research was going to be unethical for them, in, in their view. And they obtained funding from uh, multiple international sources and started, started in 2005 um, setting up multiple small offices in rural and tertiary hospitals. They hired junior research staff to do data collection who didn't look after the patients but provided an extra pair of hands in the ward 
for the treatment of for the research of those patients for the care of those uh, study participants and uh, conducted observational research cohort studies pharmacokinetic studies into more unusual poisons and RCTs one of which I followed and this tr- the trial that I followed was on an existing compound. This was not an experimental drug. It wasn't a novel drug. It was one that was already in the market, available at reasonable prices locally, but uh, for which there was some anecdotal evidence that would, it could help patients who had taken paracord from dying from multi-organ failure and lung fibrosis and uh, liver fibrosis and, and, and all those symptoms that the man on the ward had. And I think that's an important point when you think about the ethics of doing this, this particular study. Papers were written, all the data that was gathered was, was then tabulated and, and generated into articles, uh, policy proposals, um, guidelines for better healthcare and, uh, and changes in, in practice. Um, all of this work started to show tensions between evidence-based medicine and, um, and the tradition of clinical care that is often based on hierarchy and the craft in uh, clinical practice. But nonetheless, here is where we, um, we start to see how the abject, who is the man in the ward, is becoming an object, uh, somebody who, fr- from whom uh, research is collected, i.e. A, a participant in a research project. <coughs> So going to my notes, to the, se- to, to the section called From Abject to Object to Subject. The junior research assistant held the paracot patient while he was having convulsions. The IV drip going to the patient's arm tore his skin. He was bleeding and some liquid from the drip drizzled out. The patient shook uncontrollably and landed on his side on the edge of the bed, drooling, breathing, gasping for air. White foamy saliva ran down from his mouth to the floor into the growing puddle of IV fluid, urine and blood. Dilohan, seemingly distressed, said to me that they were having a hell of a time. Friends and relatives stood around looking at all of this all the time. Someone was screaming in the background. A guest was vomiting somewhere behind me outside in the garden. I felt utterly useless. I thought that the patient-come-trial subject was gone, and as morbidly fascinated as I was to see him die, I felt like I had to go and sit down. Soon after, at 10.20, I was told that the patient had passed away. So when patients come to, to be part of trials, and what I argue are um, def- redefined as objects, in these circumstances... Obviously, the line between therapy and um, experiment is a fine one, and doing research in those conditions is a challenge. In between, in between all of that vomiting and questioning need to be slipped in the gold standards of, of ideas about autonomy, ideas about uh, consent and telling patients about <coughs> what they might be getting sent themselves into, including randomization and passing on all that I- information in such emergency setups. Um, being as part of a trial then introduces that gold standard of how pat- uh, study subjects sorry, should be treated, and here's where the object su- uh, sorry the subject starts to emerge. Ethical practices were followed in all the trials that I followed, 
but they were a hurdle to negotiate. Typically, what the research assistants did was that they tried to get the full attention of the study participant. They were told that what they had taken was toxic, but that there was an experiment that might or might not help them. They, they consented the patient and then they consented the relatives if they were around. They handed the patient a questionnaire and a participant information sheet, but the question and the questionnaire tended to be filled in advance. It said that this was a bona fide research collaboration and the patients understood what uh, what they were getting themselves into and had a host of of details about the trial. <coughs> Often it was filled in advance, but the all they need the patients participants needed to do was sign. Sometimes the patients asked questions but most often not. They were certainly given very little explanation if they didn't ask for that. They were always told about the experimental nature of the trial, but that was sometimes difficult because the science literacy was really very low and there was only a one word for experiment for research which was experiment and so much must have been lost in translation. But they were always explained that to the, to the best of efforts and that, that their participation or not would not, they're not unparticip- if they didn't participate, would not affect their care, and that they could withdraw any, at any point or refuse. What was often overlooked, or at times overlooked, was that um, they might actually be the guy in the placebo arm. All but one of the patients that I followed said yes. The one guy said that I actually did want to die and um, I just please leave me alone, and his wishes were respected. When those who were recruited in the trial were generally giving a lot more attention than if they were not in the trial, um, the clinical research assistants would come and visit the patients. They asked the same questions at the doctors. They uh, more or less did the same examinations, but they came more frequently. They had a lot more time to them. They talked about other things. They heard of what happened before the person had ingested poison. What was the quarrel in the family? What was the problem? What were the issues? And a, a more respectful, warm relationship developed between them. And so as part of the research, um, the abjects were co- reconfigured as objects. And now to whom these international guidelines applied and therefore I argue that they were reconfigured as subjects. Since the man is now dead, we have no more field notes and I will uh, talk you through my concluding uh, arguments about precarious ethics and precarious bioethics. In this argument, the trajectory has been largely a beneficent one. Um, Though the patient became an abjected, stigmatized patient through having been an object in a trial, was given certain amounts of of respect, autonomy and a credit that rendered them them subjects of, um, of clinical research. But this might not always be the case. We should not overestimate the fact that um, these were extremely vulnerable patients on on various fronts of mention discussed in the the ethical literature regarding vulnerability, ranging from capacity to make decisions, um, 
their science literacy, their ability to understand what they're getting themselves into, um, medicine generally paternalistic, would they be able to make these decisions for themselves? And they had um, limited access to health. They certainly they had limited access to healthcare, but they certainly had better chances of surviving if they indeed did not want to die, if they were part of the trials. And so all of these features are discussed in the literature as as issues that might render vulnerability problematic, and yet. And, and so yet this, the, the beneficent trajectory of this particular trial might not apply in, in so many other situations. There has been a long history of human experimentation that I trust that you're aware of, range, ranging from uh, the events that led to uh, the Helsinki Declaration and the Belmont Report, and um, international guidelines have been put into place to prevent um, people from becoming bare life at the hands of a state or um, commercial interests. Here, we don't, we're not describing bare life in the sense of being rendered abjects by totalitarian state or uh, commercial interests, but in fact, there were compelling grounds of why the kind of research needs to be done that, that was indeed done. Um, the, the researchers were driven by an ethos of surf, sorry, service. They had idealistic pronunciations about why the research needs to be done and, ha that, and that it was ethical that this research should be done. The gap between ideal conditions where research should be done and how it, it is, how ethics is, is bioethics or ethical guidelines, practices are implemented is not exactly a novel argument, and I'm not proposing that here, but want to go to a slightly different direction. Uh, I want to, to point out, this, take this analysis to a direction of looking at overlaps of humanitarianism and clinical trials. Um, for the abjects, we are in the realms of poverty, suffering, uh, misery, displacement, political disfranchisement, and economical, e economical marginalization. And for them, rights cannot be uh, mobilized through conventional ways. So here, in fact, uh, what happened that their rights, their subjecthood, citizenship, in a way, uh, was reconfigured through this collaboration of universities, international guidelines of research ethics. It, it created a new way of, of uh, managing the relationship between life, death, and care. So the international research brought in these new dynamics uh, out and to the fore, which were not uh, taking place until then. So looking at clinical trials in this kind of way, in as an ethnographic exploration uh, to the knowledge production, to the dynamics of suicide, agriculture and so on, it really f brings light to the tensions within the context. We're talking about... Um, economics of agriculture, we talk about farming, we talk about morality of suicide, uh, public policy making, humanitarian endeavour and medical research. And the problems that this new configuration, this, this new way of managing life and death, uh, cannot be alone, solved alone by, by medicine and by medical research. And hence, um, the, the reason I kept precarious bioethics in in brackets is precisely that <coughs> these are not only issues about medicine but the vulnerability that has been created uh, for these patients because of these configurations of, of poverty, marginality, 
um, farming, suicide, and morality of suicide, and so on. So in this context, when clinical trials travel into, develop, into the developing world, uh, falling within an exper experimental gaze didn't result in dehumanization, but it's opposite an opportunity and a possibility of recognition of, as a rights-bearing agent, a subject. In other contexts, however, I, I want to remind everybody, here's my normative statement, um, we should not underestimate the power of subjects of becoming ab abjects, so the trajectory going the other way around, ethics, I say, is a precarious business.